Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're grateful this morning that we have an unwavering hope. But we come to acknowledge and admit that that hope that we can enjoy through faith in Jesus Christ is only possible because of the work that you do in our hearts to draw us to faith in Christ and open our eyes and our heart to believe in the truth of the gospel. So, Lord, this morning we're praying to the Lord of the harvest to do that work in our hearts. Not only for those who have already believed, that we would come to understand the amazing privilege and blessing that it is to be sons and daughters of the king. But Lord, I pray that the Lord of the harvest would also work in hearts to tenderize them, to condition them, so that they are receptive to the seed of the word of God, the truth of the scripture. Father, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would have his way in hearts today. I pray that you would do your work of a convicting of sin. I pray that you would do your work of illuminating hearts to help us see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ in your word. That the truth would be clear to us. And Lord, that we would walk out from here as those who are changed. Changed as we come face to face with the truth of the scripture and we see the Savior. Lord, may this time be a time of worship and celebration as we look into your scripture, your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we've been working through the, the gospel of Luke. We're in kind of the second week of our study. I would encourage uh, any of you who aren't familiar with this or don't know this, there is a there's actually a, a group, a connect group, um, that's meeting at 9 o'clock, 9.15, I think, to 10.15 every Sunday morning to kind of discuss the study guide that, uh, that maybe has been put in your hands. And I would encourage you to be part of that. It will help to, to kind of build um, a, a little bit uh, better base, perhaps, of understanding as we're coming into the Scripture it will give you an opportunity to, to look at the Word of God and to, to talk about how does this apply to your life, to discuss some of the things that you're learning from the, from the passage with others. And I would, I would commend that to you. It will be a tremendous blessing. This morning, we're going to look at the gift of God's revelation. And this morning, we're going to see that Jesus is rejoicing. He's rejoicing at the work of the Father in the hearts of those who believe. And as we look at this passage, we're going to be reminded of the fact that however smart you may think you are, however rational and logical, how, however, however brilliant and intellectually gifted you might be, whatever you bring to the table in terms of intellectual prowess and superiority will not assist you in relationship to understanding the hidden truths of the gospel. Those truths are given to babies. And they're given to babies, intellectual babies as it were, those who are considered simple, those who take the truth at face value, those who are willing to humble themselves to the, to the word of God and just receive like a child. Just thinking about how, uh, how, how fun it is to do, to do little um, magic tricks with little kids. Or, or, you, or you tell uh, kids about something and they're just going to believe you at face value. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the, the wonder and in, 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 in a, in a, uh, the marveling um, ability of kids to be able to hear the truth and believe the truth at face value. Maybe a, a good illustration before we head into the text this morning is perhaps the brightest mind that history has ever known. A man by the name of Augustine who was born in the 4th century. He was actually born to a Christian mother. But as he grew up, he rejected the faith of his mother and began to pursue his own intellectual giftedness and pursue 
a life with God, salvation, apart from the Bible. He did this in a Persian religion known as Manichaeism. He pursued this Gnostic heresy, which suggested that you could find God through knowledge and mysticism. But his immorality led him to other things of his life. His passions of the flesh drove him even further away from God. He later became disillusioned with Manichaeism and then discovered something known as uh, the Platonism. But all this time, his mother, who was committed to the Lord, committed to the scripture and the gospel, consistently prayed to the Lord of the harvest, rescue my son from his, his ways. God, by his grace, came upon um, Augustine and, and led him to a church father named Ambrose. Ambrose was able to convince uh, Augustine of the truths of the scripture, but he was only accepting them at uh, an intellectual level. He didn't internalize it. He didn't believe them to the point of obedience and following after Christ. In the midst of this turmoil over sin in his life, this pursuing of his sexual fantasies, he heard a song, a song that was sung by a small child, a small child who was singing the song in Latin with the words, take and read, speaking of the scripture. This simple, innocent clear message of this young child was what God used as a catalyst to spark the heart and mind of Augustine and to lead him to true conversion. He was delivered from this life of sin and Augustine became perhaps the greatest theologian of of church history, writing over five million words. And every single theologian that has lived since the time of Augustine has been influenced in some way, either directly or indirectly, by his giftedness with the word. But first, coming to Christ because of simplicity and humility, accepting on the surface, not striving to know, but accepting the truth of the gospel at face value. This morning, we're going to come to a passage in Luke chapter 10. And I would encourage you to open your Bibles, if you would, with me. Luke chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, uh, in the pew in front of you is a Bible. And on page 868, that's where you'll find us. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 21 and moving to verse 24. In these three verses, Jesus is going to celebrate the Father's plan. The, The Father's plan of leading hearts to salvation. And Jesus' heart erupts with praise because of this work of the Father in rescuing the lost, in leading them to salvation. Notice with me, Luke chapter 10, verse 21. Here's what it says. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise in understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, For such was your gracious will. We're going to see a number of ways in which Jesus is responding to the Father's will. And right at the start, we see that Jesus rejoices in the Father's plan. He rejoices in the Father's plan. This passage this morning is the singular instant, the singular account in all of the gospel records of Jesus rejoicing. It was not that Jesus was never happy, or that Jesus was never lighthearted or encouraged. It wasn't that Jesus was always depressed and sullen and discouraged and beaten down in ministry, but that there was a seriousness to the work that he was, he was accomplishing. There was a burden of ministry that he continually felt. There were the masses of people and the souls of people that he was seeking to serve. This constant spending of self, this constant pouring out of energy, this constant submission to the will of the Father in serving those who are around him led to this description of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 and 4, where it says of Jesus, He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, 
And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The mark of Christ's life as described by the prophet Isaiah was a life that was acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows, a a man who carried the burden of the world on his shoulders. Certainly, Jesus is one who caused joy in others, the celebration that they would have experienced in the, the healing ministry of Christ. I think particularly of Jairus, who went to Jesus, remember, pleading with Jesus to come to his home because his only daughter was sick and on the verge of death. And on the way, as Jesus was making his way to Jairus' house, they get word, your daughter is dead. The heart of Jairus, feeling crushed by discouragement because of the reality of this little one passing away. Jesus says, don't worry, just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. Makes his way to the house of Jairus. Jairus and his wife enter into the room and Jesus will raise up Jairus' daughter. Imagine the joy that filled Jairus, his heart. And certainly the joy then as Jesus is is helping to lead others into celebration at the work of God. Jesus' heart is certainly rejoicing as well. I also think about the immoral woman. Remember, as Jesus goes to the house of, of the man who is the chief of the synagogue, Jesus enters his home and this public place and this immoral woman comes uh, right in front of everyone and kneels at Jesus' feet and washes his feet with her hair, worships him, is devoted to him, and demonstrates her commitment to Jesus. And Jesus says, woman, your sins are forgiven you. He recognized the condition of her heart And Jesus certainly was rejoicing in his heart as he saw another sinner turn from sin to himself. In a couple of chapters from now, in Luke chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus will describe this joy, this kind of joy. He says, I I say to you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Certainly, Jesus was a man who embodied joy, but the the test of his ministry would represent a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. But here, in our passage today, we see this eruption of joy that that comes out in the appearance and into the life of Jesus, out into the open for everyone to see. Here, this rare occasion, we get a glimpse of the joy of our Lord. So what causes the joy of Christ in this moment? Remember, this is an overflow of joy of the 72 who have just returned from ministry. Remember how they went out and we find in verse 17, we see the 72 returned with joy. The word kara, the joy that... That, uh, that adorned their life because of, of being useful for the mission, of being able to share the message. Certainly, Jesus rejoices because of this expanding work of the kingdom. In verse 20, the, the beginning part, we see that Jesus confirms their joy as he's, he's talking about Satan his falling like, like, like lightning, which was this, this picture of this gospel kingdom work that was going forward. And every soul that was claimed for the kingdom of God was a, a soul that was rescued away from the kingdom of Satan. Certainly Jesus was rejoicing that now this work of ministry, this authority of the kingdom of God was, was bearing forth fruit in front of him. But in verse 20, uh, second part, we find that Christ wants to redirect their joy. And that becomes kind of the, the segue into our passage this morning. Christ will say, don't rejoice that you have authority and power of, over demons. Rejoice in the important things, that your name is written in heaven. It was this joy. This joy of the Father in claiming hearts for the kingdom that Jesus now moves into joy of his own. We find this joy, this joy of Christ, rejoicing, it says, in the Holy Spirit. 
This word for rejoice is not like the, the words that we saw in verses 17 and verse 20. The, the word for rejoicing here is this electric kind of overflowing, almost exploding kind. It's a, it's a compound word, which means much or many. And the word leap, so much leaping, much joy, much exuberance. It's often used of those who would skip or leap for joy because of the, the abounding excitement they're feeling at the news they've just heard. Jesus is essentially leaping for joy. It's the same joy that we find in Luke chapter 1, verse 46 to 49, where Mary rejoices, it says. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, now, from now on, generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary rejoicing because of the overshadowing work of the Holy Spirit to conceive Jesus in her womb. She would now be the, the mother of God. She would be the person who would, who would see Jesus as he would grow up in her home. Jesus is full of that kind of joy. But we can't overlook the rest of this phrase. Luke adds that he is rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. His joy came through the ministry of the Spirit. It's an, it's an interesting detail that Luke will add for a very important purpose. I believe he adds this phrase that Jesus rejoices in the Holy Spirit for two reasons. First, to demonstrate the collaborative nature of joy. To demonstrate the collaborative nature in joy in that the Trinity agrees with what Jesus will celebrate in the following verses. Joy from the Son through the instrumentation of the Holy Spirit that goes to God the Father. This is the joy of the Godhead. Jesus rejoicing is not rejoicing independently. This is a shared expression of joy. This mutual priority, this one heart and one mind of the Godhead in rejoicing at the work of the Father in calling individuals to himself. There is perfect agreement. I think Luke also adds this to help us understand as those who would be disciples of Christ to recognize how does joy come to those who follow after Christ? Remember that Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem. In chapter 9, on two occasions, Jesus would say that he's going up to Jerusalem to be killed. He knew exactly what was going to happen there. And yet his heart is marked with joy. What will lead us to joy when all of the outside factors are trying to discourage? There's only one way to respond to joy. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, it says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. Those who have the Spirit will be marked by joy. It comes no other way. And in Acts chapter 13, verse 52, it says, The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy in peace, in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Joy comes one way. Joy comes through the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is working in the heart of our Savior to lead him to joy. And for those of us in this room, maybe you're like me, there are times where joy is elusive. There are times where discouragement settles in. There are times when the situations that we face are crowding in and seeking to overwhelm us and to lead us to despair. And the, the, the key for us to experience what Jesus is experiencing here is the ministry and the power of the Spirit to lead us to joy. We can experience joy as Jesus rejoiced in the Father's plan. We continue in verse 21, we see that Jesus not only rejoiced in the Father's plan, but Jesus is thankful for the Father's plan. I, I know these seem very similar. 
Jesus continues this joy, expressing this joy in gratitude to the Father. Notice, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The word for thanks that Jesus uses here is another compound word that that is the word out of and the word the same, to speak the same as. Jesus is expressing from his heart. It's flowing from the inside out in this expression of prayer and praise and gratitude. Now, Jesus is modeling yet again for his disciples how rejoicing in God is meant to take shape. He's agreeing with the work of the Father. He's celebrating the work that he is doing, the Father is doing. He's praising him and giving him thanks. The Lord Jesus, who Luke pictures as a man of prayer, will erupt again in prayer. Luke wants to continue to draw our attention to the significance and the secret of Jesus' ministry that is always in fellowship with God. And Jesus is rejoicing in the response of the work of those 72 who came back, that their mess, the message of the kingdom was received, the power of the kingdom was demonstrated, and the authority of the kingdom was evident. Behind it all was the work of the Father. The Lord of the harvest had done the work in the heart. There's this twofold activity of the Father. Notice, he has a work of hiding, and he has the work of revealing. This work of hiding is to keep secret, to conceal, to bury, to veil. This work to reveal, which is the opposite of to hide, is literally to remove a covering, to expose, to to bring it open, out open into full view. The Father is responsible for either hiding, concealing, or revealing. This ministry of the Lord of the harvest to allow this work of the harvest to have its way in the heart. And this revealing will happen to two groups of individuals. This concealing work of the Father conceals the truth from the wise and understanding, from those who would depend on their intellectual superiority, from those who would claim to have arrived, from those scholars who would allege that they have discerned the deep, truths for themselves, those learned men who would depend on argumentation and reason and logic, those in Jesus' ministry would become the most antagonistic, these religious elite who would come and begin to antagonize Jesus' ministry and follow after him and seek to discredit his work. These were the spiritual elite, those who knew better those who knew the law, those who had memorized much of the Old Testament, those who were able to discern the nuances of the Scripture, and yet they were blinded by the truth that Jesus would give because the Father had blinded their minds. But we learn there's another group, another group of individuals whom God will reveal. God will reveal the truth to these individuals, to those who are children in our passage this morning. And not just children, they are little children. They're napias in the Greek. They're infants. They're babies. They're they're those with the, the simplest understanding of life. Jesus is describing not a disadvantage of varying groups, but he's describing for us the way in which we must come to the Father and come to the gospel. We cannot come to the gospel on our own. Not only is the, is the Father hiding and concealing the truth, but there are other factors that are at play as well. We find in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses one or two, uh, 3 and 4, it says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of those of the unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. God is concealing. He's allowing the truth of the word to remain hidden from them. But the God of this world, who is Satan, 
and his forces are also concealing, blinding the minds of those who believe, believe not. But there's another factor at play as well. Your own heart has blinded you from receiving the truth, as we see in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 19. There's no one to blame but yourself. Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become calloused and have given themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The forces that are at play to keep you from receiving the gospel are you, the devil, and God. So what is, what is the way? How does anybody receive the gospel? Well, we find the, the solution in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It says this, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God reveals, the, the God of the harvest reveals the light of the gospel to the heart. And when we see the light of the glorious gospel, as the Father is allowing it to, to be evident in our life, then there is a, uh, a response of faith that takes place a response of faith that happens as we become like little children and receive the truth of the gospel at face value. As Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 18, verses 2 and 3, calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We want to experience the revelation of God in our life, become like a child. If you want to experience the work of God in salvation, humble yourself, make yourself low, accept God's truth at face value, put away the skepticism, invite the Lord of the harvest to have his way in your heart. Because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Jesus rejoiced in the Father's plan. Jesus is thankful for the Father's plan, and Jesus fulfills the Father's plan, as we see in verse 22. Notice, all things have been handed over to me by the Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This word for handed over is the word to deliver, to give, to hand over authority. There has been this transfer of delegated authority that the Father has now entrusted to the Son. This is a statement not so much of this transfer of authority, but it elevates the deity of Christ in helping us understand that the Father is commissioning this assignment to the Son, which helps us to appreciate who the Son really is. The Son is God, as the Father is God. What are, what are the all, these all things that that Jesus is referring to. Of course, we understand that Jesus spoke the words of the Father. He is given the message of God the Father, and he, and he entrusts or gives that message to those who listen. Jesus also displays the works of the Father and submits himself to the will of the Father. But in the master plan of God, Jesus will also carry out the will of the Father. Jesus himself will be entrusted with the work of carrying out and fulfilling the plan that was set before the foundation of the world. Jesus will truly fulfill the Father's plan in every way. It has been entrusted to Jesus to carry out. In John chapter 6, verses 38 and 39, Jesus will say as much when he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This will of the Father, of revealing 
the gospel to hearts and drawing them to himself is now a work that the Son will carry out. Notice at the, at the end of this verse, in verse 22, that no one will know the Father except those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. All things have been handed over to the Son. The carrying out of this saving plan, but also the work of revealing the Father to those who will listen. The Son came to show the Father. In John chapter 14, verses 8 to 11, this is the night before Jesus was crucified. In this intimate exchange between Jesus and his disciples, Philip will ask this question. He'll say, in John 14, verses 8 to 11, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Philip, I have been showing you the Father from the beginning. I have been speaking the words of the Father. I have been confirmed by those works that you've seen in my life. They confirm that I belong to the Father. You are seeing the Father's heart, the Father's character through the expression of my life. Philip, haven't you been with me long enough to know that I and the Father are one? Jesus wants Philip and his audience to recognize that the work that Jesus came to do was to show the Father and to fulfill the Father's plan. Jesus is rejoicing, rejoicing in the Father's plan. He's thankful for the Father's plan, and he will fulfill and carry out the work of the Father's plan. But finally, we see in verses 23 and 24, the disciples are blessed because of the Father's plan. Notice, now Jesus turning from his prayer Turning to the disciples, he says privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus is calling attention to the, to the great privilege that these disciples have. Of course, the crowds that followed after Christ also got to see those works and hear those words, but there wasn't the seeing and the hearing that led to believing as it did with these disciples. They were truly blessed. The word which is to, to indicate happiness or those who are fortunate, those who are experiencing the favor of God, this state of being marked by the fullness of God. Luke is is intending in this segment as he's drawing attention to this private discussion that uh, Jesus is having with his disciples, wanting them to understand that those who follow in their steps, those who are disciples in the same way, those who have the same kind of vision, the same kind of hearing, the same kind of, of receptivity that leads to believing, are those who will also enjoy the benefits and the privileges of this same blessing. Paul will say in response to this truth in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Those who have received and believed the message of the gospel are blessed. The great privilege of having your sins forgiven the great privilege of being able to stand before a holy God and having the ledger that has been wiped away and cleansed because of the righteousness of Christ. The Father sees the righteousness and the purity of his Son. 
the son who has paid for your sin on the cross, and those who receive by faith this work of Christ in believing him in, for salvation are counted as those who are blessed, just like the disciples. Of course, all of that was possible because of what we're about to be reminded of here in this communion table. The, the elements of the, of the body and the blood of Jesus, this, this picture of, of Jesus paying for sins on the cross to make a way of salvation. So as I pray, if the men and the, the musicians would come forward and we'll be reminded of this great picture. Father, we praise you this morning for this great work of your son, Jesus, who rejoices in the work of the Father, who is thankful for the, for the authority and the power of, of the Father to overcome every obstacle and to welcome us in to the kingdom and for this fulfilling work of Christ who came to seek and to save the lost. Lord, as we come to remind ourselves of this finished work, we praise you for what you have accomplished. In Jesus' name, amen. sing together. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. He humbled himself and carried the cross. Love so amazing. Love so
it's just a symbol of the body of Christ. There's no saving, rescuing value in, in this symbol. Just a representation. Jesus, on the night before he was crucified, in the upper room with his disciples, had on his mind a desire for them to experience the same joy that we saw in our passage today. In John chapter 15, verses 9 to 11, he says this, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Speaking to his disciples, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We experience joy as believers in Christ because of the work on the cross. This picture of suffering that we hold in our hands, this broken body, this cracker that's been broken, is a picture of a broken, pierced body that obtained joy. So Jesus says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember Christ as we eat together. Sing together. His body, the bread, his blood, the wine, broken and poured out all for love. The whole earth trembled and the veil was torn. Love so
writer of the Hebrews expresses the joy of Christ this way. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that Jesus could experience was joy that was going to go through the cross. It was a joy that was going to happen because of the work he was about to do by dying and rising again, making a way of salvation. The Father's plan from before the foundation of the world would happen. It would be fulfilled, and Jesus would do it. And because of Jesus' work, his death on the cross, his broken body, but also because of precious blood, the precious blood of Christ made a way. Made a way for us to experience joy. So Jesus will say, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. Let's remember the Lord's blood as we drink together. Thank you for shedding your blood to cover our sin. We just acknowledge all is done by you. And we thank you for that, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I was interacting with a pastor, and he said, Andrew, please pray. There's a young man who's 21 years old who I'm going to meet with on Friday. I don't think he knows the Savior. Would you pray? And so I did. I prayed, Lord, please allow this conversation to be fruitful. Let the Lord of the harvest accomplish your work in a heart of revealing your truth to this young man. I got a text this morning. It says, you never guess what happened. This young man, 21 years old, hearing the gospel, believed. Believed. God is doing that work. And I pray that God does that work among us. I pray that this morning, if God has used his word and the testimony of the gospel to speak to your heart, you don't leave this place without doing business with God. These men up here would love to answer your questions about how to start a relationship with Jesus, how to ask for forgiveness for your sins how to make your life right, and how to find peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't leave this morning without having a conversation and doing business with God. Humble yourself like a little child, a napios, a baby who's crying, who doesn't know any better. But believe, believe the gospel at face value and see the work of God in your life like this 21-year-old man. Thanks for coming this morning. God bless you as you go. You want to stay and sing, we're going to sing. You don't have to. You can't. But I like to sing after communion. So if you'd like to, um, you can sit or stand and join with us. If not, we'll see you next time. All our hope is in you. All our hope is in you.
Don't forget about tonight. You're able to come tonight and be a part of our evening service and hear uh, Daniel Kane and his ministry. That'd be great to have you here over in the NPR. We'll see you. We'll see you later. <laughs>